Welcome to the Leadership Playbook, the show where successful leaders share what they learn to get to where they are. This podcast is an offshoot of the Albers Executive Speaker Series. And it's brought to you by RSMUS LLP, the nation's leading provider of assurance, tax, and consulting services focused on the middle market. I'm your host, Joe Phillips, the Dean of Seattle University's Albers School of Business and Economics. Every once in a while, we feature recordings of live panel discussions at the Albers Executive Speaker Series. This one you're about to hear featured Peter Tomazawa, CEO of Seattle FIFA World Cup 26, whose topic was the anatomy of a successful host city pitch, how Seattle won over FIFA to host the 2026 World Cup. We're delighted to welcome Peter Tomazawa, the CEO of Seattle 2026. The theme of his presentation tonight is about why the World Cup is coming to Seattle in 2026. So in February, it was announced that Sounders FC President of Business Operations, Peter Tomazawa, would take on the top leadership position with Seattle 2026, the local organizing committee that is charged with readying our community for the World Cup. After four successful seasons with Sounders FC, he left to become the chief executive officer of Seattle 2026, which puts him in charge of our region's role in hosting part of the world's biggest sporting event. Starting in 2016, he served as vice president and executive director of partnerships and board relations for LA 2024, LA 2028, where he managed relationships with institutional partners and board members for LA's successful bid to host the 2028 Summer Olympics and Paralympics. In addition to his work with Sounders FC and the Los Angeles Olympics bid, he's a minority owner of the Las Vegas Golden Knights in the National Hockey League, who are not going to beat the Kraken in the playoffs, just for the record, (laughs) and the Welsh club Swansea City of the English Football League. Additionally, he previously served as a partner and global head of foreign exchange sales at Goldman Sachs, where he worked for 17 years before transitioning into civic affairs for the state of Hawaii. So with that, join me in welcoming Peter Tomazawa to Seattle University. Thanks, Joe. Very kind and overly generous introduction. And those that you do know me, uh, it's impossible for me to speak 10 minutes. That is too, too small of a time. I can talk for a long time. You know, Joe gave you a little bit about my background. But one part that's not in the bios is, is how I got to Seattle. and. I was living in Hawaii. I'd worked at this sort of intense job for almost two decades. Decided that, you know, the cost of what we had put together for my career at the time was, was time. It was a lost time. I had five children. And I missed countless birthdays, countless anniversaries. I was traveling two and a half weeks a month. It just got to be a bit much. And so it was a high price to pay, but it got me to do things that I never dreamed I could ever be do. So we moved to Hawaii, as, as you do, and I started doing stuff and ultimately ran into some people. Long story short, I got to be commissioner of charter schools for the state of Hawaii. So it was really gratifying. 30 schools, 10,000 children, $65 million state budget. For someone who has no, everybody thinks they know about education because they went to school. 
sort of like everybody thinks they know about sports because they've done sports. And <laughs> it's a similar kind of thing. But I ended up doing that amazing experience. And through that, I got to meet the mayor of Honolulu. And then he hired me to come join his cabinet. And uh, I found myself working in the city government. But as life would have it, after about five years of living in Hawaii, my youngest son of five children happened to be a pretty good soccer player. And he went to the mainland, as we call it, and tried out for two MLS academy teams in 2015. You know, that was kind of the time when the MLS teams were starting to have academies. And, you know, he tries out for Portland, he tries out for Seattle, doesn't make Portland, but he makes Seattle. He comes home and he says, Mom, Dad, I, I made the team. I made, and they're, they're inviting me to come to Seattle. And we're like, what does this mean? And they're like, well, he says, I'm going to move to Seattle. I'm like, what? what, what my, my wife's like, what? You're not moving to Seattle. And he's like starting to argue, you know, put the arguments together as to why he should be allowed to do so. They have host families. And my wife was having none of it. And she was like, you're not living with the host family. And the truth was, my wife and I were facing premature empty nesting. If he leaves, we're going to have to be faced with each other. And that was not a thought she could bear. So the reality was, she looked at me and she said, our son is not moving to Seattle. We are moving to Seattle and we're going to support his, his dream you know, of playing soccer. So my association with Seattle started as a father of an academy kid. That's how it started. And we moved to this beautiful city in 2015, 16 timeframe. And by that time I learned I'd better find a job or do something, otherwise I would be miserable. So as life would have it, I ended up getting a job in Los Angeles for the Olympic bid committee. There was no job posting. I, it was basically a guy I knew from my former workplace, Goldman Sachs, was named CEO of this organization. So I called him and I said, I don't know what, you know, it all is all involved in the business of sports, but it strikes me that you would need somebody that knows their way around a mayor's office and somebody that knows about community. And this is what I've been doing. So I fly down to LA and next thing I know, I'm like employee number whatever six <laughs> of this group and took 30 people full time to bid for the Olympic Games. And part of the, I think the presentation that we wanted to talk about was sort of the Olympics versus the World Cup. I feel fortunate to be able to say I know a little bit about both. And in fact, someone was just remarking me t to me the other day, like how many people on this earth actually have bid for and won the Olympic Games and bid for and won a World Cup, a host city assignment. That's not a consultant, you know, that they hire for those things. And so I thought, wow, that's pretty interesting. But I feel more like Forrest Gump than I do like any sort of special person. Just kind of having to stumble into things and stumbling is kind of how I've lived my life. So I'm sure that's going to be highly unsatisfactory answers to some of your questions that you'll have. But what I thought I'd do is I'd give you a little history of the Olympics and the World Cup because they're actually interlinked. People don't realize that. The modern Olympic Games started in 1896 by a man named Pierre de Coubertin. And his idea and his vision was, can we bring the world together in peace through sport like they did in the old Greece days? So in 1896, he got a bunch of people together. They held the very first modern Olympics in Athens. This was becoming a very successful thing. Of course, the next Olympics, where was that? 
Paris, because he's from France. And so that was in 1900, and then in 1904, FIFA was formed. Soccer has started becoming a much more popular sport all around the world, and they created a governing body of soccer called FIFA, which stands for the Federation of International Football Associations. It's the governing body for soccer all over the world, and that was 1904. But one of the things that was going around in the Olympic movement was this popularity of one of the most, the sports that became the most popular was football, or soccer as we call it. And it was not lost on the FIFA people. This is actually a pretty cool event, a global event around our sport. So by 1930, they decided, we're gonna go on our own and host our own event. And they did it in the off year of the Olympics, right? That's the reason why the World Cup is every two years from the Olympic Summer Olympic Games. It's by design. A lot of people don't know that, but that's how this was all occurred. So in 1930, the first World Cup was held in Uruguay. We are now going to host the 23rd edition of the World Cup in 2026. And it is a phenomenal event. One of the things that the differences in sort of comparing and contrasting is obviously the World Cup is one sport. In Paris in 2024, they'll have 32 sports. Okay, so it's much more of a sports circus, <laughs> if you will, with a whole bunch of different things. And the key difference between Olympic Games and a World Cup is the audience. People go to the Olympic Games as spectators. They want to sample all these different sports and see all their different things that they get to see. People go to the World Cup as participants. They care. They care crap loads about what's going on, and they know everything about every player and every part of the. It's just unbelievable, this, this concaphony of sort of pride in the country, a beloved fervor and belief in the sport. And I feel very fortunate because I've gotten to enjoy both those experiences, going to the World Cup and going to Olympic Games. But I will tell you, the World Cup's intensity and what we're going to see here in 2026 is so much greater than you've ever seen. It is just going to blow the roof off of this place. And if, you know, if we get a country like Mexico in our region or Japan or some big name team that comes into our region, this place is gonna go off. It's gonna be crazy. But you know, the thing that's interesting about the scale of this event, so four billion people witnessed the Qatar World Cup. Four billion. You know how many people live in the world? Nine. So four-ninths of the world, 44% of the world's population saw the World Cup. The World Cup final, 1.2 billion. 1.2 billion people saw the World Cup final. You know how people see the Super Bowl? 175 million. Okay? Six times bigger. And the thing that was interesting to me when you sort of think about some of the statistics of the World Cup is that the least watched match, the least watched, the most uninteresting matchup in the World Cup gets an audience of 200 million, bigger than the Super Bowl. So we can actually say, you know, in 2026, when this comes to Seattle, hopefully hosting four to six games, we'll be hosting four to six minimally Super Bowl-sized events in 10 days. That's insane. The scale of this thing is so large. But what's more impressive about the World Cup is 
the kind of the feeling you get. We went to Qatar. I, got, I was lucky enough to go to Qatar in December. And you get there on the ground, and you sit there, and I mean, people from all walks of life, religious beliefs, political beliefs, you just see different shades of color everywhere. And they're all there in unified peace to enjoy the world's most beloved sport. It's amazing. I, to me, the, the World Cup is about unity. So is the Olympics. It's about it. But what's interesting is that now the World Cup has eclipsed the Olympics and global audience. The last really measurable non-COVID related event with the Olympics, they had 3.5 billion people. So the World Cup is 16% bigger. I did promise to talk a little bit about the differences between bidding and how do you win these things. There is a way to win these, believe me. And the Olympics is a mega event, so is the World Cup. But when we think about the people that decide these things, the IOC decides who gets to host an Olympic Games. FIFA get to decide who hosts the World Cup. And probably since the beginning of time, every city says, pick me. We're the best. We're the obvious suitor for this. We're the obvious host city. I just remember people talking about Seattle, like how could Seattle not be a host city? How could that actually ever happen? We're the capital of soccer, the Pacific Northwest. We're a culture designed to host. And we did say those things, but you know what? Every city says that same thing. In fact, every positive attribute that you can think about, you have to think about like what another city would turn that around, right? We're already good at soccer. We already have an audience that is amazingly suited well for soccer. That's just saying the obvious, right? What would Denver say? Denver would say, come here because the growth is here. Soccer is not the biggest thing in the world in our city, but it could be. And if you think about FIFA, they wanted to come to America to grow the sport. So it's actually not so obvious that Seattle should win the World Cup. We won, but it wasn't so obvious. And I will tell you, the <laughs> feeling of winning the host city rights for the World Cup was just so much greater than winning the Olympic Games. And I'm like, why is that? Why, why should I feel so much more elated? You know, I love LA, I do, and I love Seattle. So why should I feel so much better? And you know what, the odds were against us. For the LA situation, we really sort of came down to a negotiation at the end. We had to beat out a whole bunch of cities to get there, but they were dropping out for all kinds of reasons. And both the Olympics and the World Cup and trying to secure these things, it's not a trust me exercise. It's not. You know, every city says we're competent. You actually have to show how we can be competent. You actually have to put a transportation plan together. You actually have to show a safety plan. You actually have to show how much revenue we can do. How many seats are we gonna fill? How many tickets are they gonna sell? The whole business of sports is encapsulated on both of those things. But at the end of the day, you have to, like in anything, any good business school professor will say, you have to understand your audience, right? What is it that they covet? What is it that they want? Not what is it that you have? And I would say the biggest mistake most cities make when they try to host these things is just focus on what they have. And that should be enough. In other words, you're just selling the benefits of what you have as opposed to thinking about actually what is it that the IOC or, the, or FIFA are gonna want.
And there's a little bit of emotion that goes into all this too. You have to make it personal. And we're very lucky to have in our audience tonight the man who actually made it personal. Adrian Hanauer is sitting here and he hates getting attention, but. Adrian's the majority owner of the Seattle Sounders, a dear friend and a great colleague. And I will tell you this, if it weren't for this man, we would not have the host city assignment for Seattle. He put it on his back for the cost of doing it. He put it on his back. He led our, uh, what was I think one of the most phenomenal city pitches in the history of city pitches. And those are the little things that just add up. And he gave an emotional speech about him as an eight-year-old self and how the World Cup affected him in his life and how soccer affected him in his life. And those are the things that matter, you know. And we got the feedback afterwards. You guys, that was so good, right? And it was emotional. There was other things that happened to come our way along the way. One of those things as a sounder, when I was, you know, working with the sounders, was the Champions League. Champions League happened at such a great time for the World Cup. It was, you know, we couldn't have scripted it better. You know, here we are, I remember we're sitting down, sitting there thinking, oh man, you know, we actually have a chance to get through and here's our pathway. Maybe we ought to focus a little bit more on putting a good team out there for Champions League versus the MLS. So we actually gave up games in the MLS to have our best team out there for, for Champions League. And as we were moving through, this is a story that hasn't hit the paper and probably now it will, but because I'm up here talking about it. <laughs> but, you know, we were talking about how do we sell tickets to an audience that doesn't really care about Champions League. At the time, people did not care about Champions League because no American team has ever won the Champions League, right? So we had this thing where our marketing team and led by a guy named Taylor Graham, who's this awesome dude, he, he was basically pitching us as to the how are we gonna sell tickets to Champions League? And they came up with this campaign called Big Effing Deal, right? <laughs> Which is so on brand if you know Brian Schmetzer and our coach, but I'm like, agent's like, eh, I don't know about Big Effing Deal. And I think, I remember him saying, you know, if you have to tell somebody it's a big deal, it's not a big deal, right? I remember him distinctly saying that, you know, to which Taylor's like, Adrian, you, your assignment was to make this a big deal because it's not a big deal. So which way is it? And I'm like, I, I don't know about the use of the word effing, you know? I use it all the time in my whole life, but I don't know about that's gonna be work in the public. And I remember in our room, we were like, so who are the potential pitch people for this? Like who would, who would say big effing deal, you know? And they go, we can get Marshawn Lynch. I'm like, no effing way. <laughs> We will take Marshawn Lynch, yes, go, go, go try to get him. And so we build excitement around big effing deal. We get to the final, right? And so we knew this was the opportunity. And by some grace of God, we were able to sell out the Champions League final. It was an amazing soccer experience. The concaphony of noise was at a fever pitch. I mean, credit to the Mexican team. They brought 6,000 people and they sounded like 40. It was intense. And we knew that this was gonna be the, our time to shine. So we put the FIFA people in a suite that was surrounded by our elected officials. And then we invited the Puyallup Tribe of Indians Council, their big sponsor, the Sounders, to be in the box surrounding these people. And then we kind of did this like 
hey, can you do me a favor and go visit with those people? And, you know, there's important people to us. And so we're like, they saw like we could have like really important people at this match, how much it meant to the community. But then they saw the event. And it's nothing like seeing and being to believe, right? This is the beauty of soccer. It's such a great sport live, right? And every other city, only, they only have had a chance to say, we can do this, we can sell out, we can make a great environment. We actually got to show it. Now, I don't know if that's the thing that took us over the top, but I gotta believe it helped an effing lot. Because <laughs> it's all about emotion and stuff. Look, I'm gonna fill, finish my comments, and I know I'm way over 10 minutes, all right? I, I, didn't even, I didn't even check. So what are we going to do with this opportunity, right? We're going to have a billion eyeballs, billion people, two billion eyeballs, on Seattle and Washington in 2026. And what we're doing right now is going around talking about the opportunity and getting people excited about it. We're talking to elected officials. I just gave a presentation at the state legislature. Our vision and our idea around this is so different than the other cities. Most cities will just want to host the games in 2026. We're actually thinking about the legacy that we leave behind. What good is it, right, that we can do? If you think about legacy and you think about 1962, the World's Fair, what legacy did that leave? It left us the Space Needle and the Seattle Center, which I'd argue is just as more important than the Space Needle actually itself. Well, we're not going to build another Space Needle. We are going to focus on a people-based legacy, programs that we leave behind, cultural activities, celebrations of culture and community. So I call it the three C's, right? Community, culture, and children. That's what we're focusing. That's the messages that have been landing. This is why we want people to come along on our journey with us, corporations and governments, right? This is not an event. This is actually something of significance for the community that will never be seen be here in our lifetimes. Well, that's not true. You guys are so young, you probably will see something like this. I definitely won't. I'm 61. This is it. <laughs> Woke up ain't coming back for another 30 years, so you know what? I'm not, I'm not betting on me being 90. But look, at the end of the day, we are focused very, very much on what we leave behind, which is a very big difference in terms of how we think about things, how we talk about things, and how we're going to behave. So what's a kind of a neat little marketing twist is sort of this 1962, 26 is a flip of 62. So we're going to really heavily focus on bringing not only the games to Seattle, but bringing Washington and Seattle to the world. We're gonna host the fan festival down on the waterfront, right? The brand new waterfront park. Interestingly enough, Doha, Qatar, celebrated their brand new waterfront, in fact, their brand new city, <laughs> through the World Cup. So 2025 will be the grand opening of the waterfront. 2026 will be the coronation. This is how we're thinking about it. And look, I'm gonna stop, take questions. I've talked too long. So with that, I'm gonna turn it over to the panel. Okay, thanks, Peter. That was a great start. I think you anticipated probably some of the questions of our panelists, even though it took you to go to overtime to do it. That's okay. <laughs>
We're good with that. So let me introduce the panelists and then get to their questions. Furthest from me is Richard Bedat. He's a student in our MS in Business Analytics program. He's from Slovakia, and he last year he graduated from SU with a bachelor's degree in business economics. Richard played soccer from a very early age and was on the Slovakian youth national team for four years. He was a member of the NCAA Division I champion Merlin Terps before he transferred to SU to play on two Western Athletic Conference championship teams. And he has one more year of eligibility left for the upcoming fall season. And then sitting in the middle is Tafara Pulse. She graduated from Seattle U in 2005 with a degree in international business while playing on the women's soccer team for four years. And that included her being named the conference freshman of the year and twice being named the conference player of the year. Tafara became the first SU student athlete to earn academic All-American honors in 18 years with her second team academic All-America selection in 2003. And of course, her outstanding career at SU resulted in her being admitted to the SU Athletic Hall of Fame. After Seattle U, she played for the Sounders women's team from 2004 to 2014, captaining the team for a number of years, and they made four Final Four appearances. And she's now working as a senior program manager at Microsoft. And then closest to me is Valentina Bernal. She's a senior business analytics major with a minor in finance. She is from Chandler, Arizona, and played for the SU women's team as an outside back for four years also two WAC championship teams, right? And we'll be working at Raytheon Technologies as a workforce intelligence data analyst after graduating in June. Those are our panelists. Valentina's closest to me, so she gets to go first. What are the crucial tasks and preparations that you are responsible for working on in the months leading up to the first game of the World Cup here? That's a great question. So what does a organizing committee do? So we have to get the stadium ready. So the stadium needs to be grass, and it actually needs to be a touch wider. So we have to work out some logistics on that. So there's some capital expense. If you sort of think about the project, there's a sort of capital expenditure, and then there's program expenditure. On the capital side, we would have the field renovation work that needs to happen to have the event. We need to put together training centers, which we're speaking to the Seattle U folks about the possibility of having a World Cup training center here on the Seattle University campus is a very, very exciting proposition. We actually have some pretty great dorm rooms and facilities and campuses that we're thinking about using. So we have to think about the logistics. We're sort of like the logistics behind all that. There's also a concept called a home base camp. So every country comes to our cities, every other country, the 48 teams in this World Cup, and they all need a home base camp. They'll come here two weeks prior to the tournament, start training, getting themselves organized and set up. We're hoping to host a home base camp because we will at that time online uh, in 2026, Seattle will be the proud owner of the world's best, or the, at least the country's best trading site. The Sounders are building a brand new training facility called Long Acres. So hopefully, you know, that will be something worthy of consideration for, for FIFA. But then we also, we get the opportunity to monetize, you know, people coming to our city. And that's mainly through the Fan Festival. So the Fan Festival is a trademarked FIFA event. It's just a big watch party, but it's like watch party on steroids type of thing. 
and we will host that there on the waterfront. So we'll have somewhere between 10 to 30,000 visitors per day going through there for 40 days. So you'll be able to watch and enjoy music, soccer on a big screen TV for games that are not just in market, but also out of market. And one of our things about this event is taking that sort of watch party idea and, and also sharing the Seattleness to the rest of the state. So we want to bring the, not just the games here, but also we want to bring the event to the people across Washington. So we're envisioning being able to put different watch parties, if you will, on different parts of the state, because we know that not everybody can afford to come here. Not everyone can come here. Tickets will be hard to get. Talking to Joe, Joe's already got like the ask in. He did it a real soft way. He goes, like, you know, people are probably asking you for tickets, huh? You know, I'm like, that's the number one thing that people will do. I actually told my wife that we have to move from Seattle in 2027. Because so many people be mad at me. No, not, not, not enough tickets. You didn't hire me for the local organizing committee. All these charities are already lining up to get money from us. And they're like, you didn't invest in us. And so we have a lot of people mad. But there's a whole host of things that we have to do. We have to do security. Number one priority is making this a secure event. So we are coordinating from a federal, local, statewide level on security. There's transportation in and out of the tournament. So we, we don't want to create you know, Carmageddon, and you know how tra bad traffic can be, so we're gonna rely heavily on public transport, and we're working with SDOT and all the different organizations. So it's just this amazingly complicated matrix of things to do. Lisa Chin, who just joined us, she's our chief legacy officer. She's responsible for the legacy that we leave behind. She got to sit in on a marathon seven-hour meeting day today on just all the things that we have to do to do now to get ready for for 26 so it's, it's a project management on steroids kind of exercise thank you i'm gonna ask you a hardball question here all right can you explain offsides <laughs> <laughs> offsides is an inexplicable conundrum to 99% <laughs> in the world, but it, it's actually quite simple. Don't go in front of the ball. But I, I do admire your, your tattoo with the soccer ball on there, so that's it. Oh, thank you. you know, yeah, not many people I, in this room would know that, but it's the Saints. But one, one of the things that's interesting about offsides, I'm gonna, I, I have an answer for everything, as you can kind of tell. Great. One of the really, really cool things that we saw in Qatar was the VAR war room where they do the video assisted referee replays. So they, you know when the, when the referees call time and they go over to a monitor? Well, all this stuff gets to a, like a war room. And in this war room sits six, eight people, and they're all referee trained, and they're all looking at every camera angle to see if that ball was actually out, to see if, the, if they were actually on sides or off sides. And the thing that's really amazing is the ball is chipped, they know with exact precision where that ball sits on the plane of the field. Exact precision. And it was phenomenal to watch. So the future of the sport, to answer your question, actually, should they allow it, there may not even need to be a referee. And actually what's happened lately with the VAR is the side refs are acting more like the second and third eyes for the center ref. You actually don't need it because they can know exactly where the ball is. Every player is chipped. 
Every player. So if you think like the only way you can't believe this technology is to not believe in like the Hawkeye technology for tennis, the Hawkeye technology has taken referees out of the game, right? And I would dare say it actually makes for a better experience. The players don't complain, you know, they're not always crying and yelling and screaming at referees. Yeah. To me, soccer, the disgrace of soccer is sort of like allowing these players to just yap away at referees. I would be, I would be the red card king. I would be flipping red cards, you're gone, and you're gone, and you're gone. I would be just kicking people out of the game because it's just a poor example for our children, I think, to watch professional adult people who are the icons of their sport crying about a foul. Inexcusable. But you know, the VAR room, that thing, that, that technology and that advancement of it is phenomenal. There was a very controversy, you remember in the World Cup, Japan supposedly kicked a ball that was out of bounds. The ball was supposed over, to, and then all the, the camera angle showed it. But they showed it to us in the VAR room, and it was clear that it was in by one thousandth of a millimeter. <laughs> but the ball is round, right? The out-of-bounds line is, is, is a straight plane. It just has to touch, right? And so it has just to be that much in. And that was a, but every camera angle was sort of wrong, because the photographers are not placed directly in line and if your camera's just a little off kilter, you would think that ball was out, and it wasn't. So it was phenomenal. Great question. Yeah, best explanation of offsides I've ever heard. <laughs> I deflected. That's called, the technique is called deflection. Thank you for being here with us, Peter, today. Sure. Uh, my question is, so you were describing Seattle 2026 as an event for the people. What do you want the Washingtonians and Seattle people to take away from this event? That's a great question. I hope that the Washingtonians can come see the world that comes to visit here and embrace people for who they are and what they are. That's what I hope. We have so much division in our country today. I can't think of an event outside the Olympics or the World Cup that truly brings in people unified over one thing, to enjoy the beautiful game. And I hope Washingtonians can take that and embrace it, and it becomes part of our fundamental fiber going forward. Because there is no reason for all this hate. There's no reason for any of this stuff that goes on. And I'm not saying we're gonna cure societal ills, but this is an event that can really showcase it. On the flip side of that, I hope our visitors come here and just see the raw, sheer beauty and the people of Washington State. I hope they come. I hope they stay extended periods of time. I hope they get a chance to go visit the vineyards in Walla Walla. I hope they get a chance to go over the, to the north to Bellingham and see the beautiful flowers. And you know, this, this is an amazing place, right? And they're gonna be here in the best weather possible. We designed that, by the way. So what drew you to taking up executive level and even ownership of professional sporting teams? <laughs> so I was learning about the business of sports working on the Olympics. And through that, I had to deal with our partners. And through that, I had exposure and introductions to high net worth people and stuff like that. And one of the introductions that was made to me was to this guy, Bill Foley. Bill Foley had this dream in 2016 that we should put a hockey team 
in Las Vegas. And at this part of the story you would never would be expected to know, but I'm a hockey guy. I, I grew up in Michigan. <laughs> you know, I was eight years old when I learned about this game of hockey. And, you know, I was the only Asian kid in my school. And, you know, a bunch of mean white kids were all, you know, picking on me all the time because I had slanty eyes. And, and, and then I saw this sport where, like, they give you a stick. It's okay, in fact, encouraged to hit the crap out of people. I'm an angry kid. I'm small, scrawny, but, you know, when you get on skates, you have an equalizer there, too, because if you can skate better than someone, that sort of equalizes a little bit. So I fell in love with this game. Anyway, the best part of the story is yet to come, because we get to, I don't know if you remember, but in 2017, the fall, there was that tragic shooting at the hotel. You know, some 50, almost 60 people were perished, and it was shocking. And our players were the second responders. They threw on jerseys, and they just said to the owners, what can we do? This is exactly how Sounders players would react, by the way. But they had never played a game in, in Las Vegas. And the next thing you know, they're all over TV. Every hospital bed, every person that was injured, every police station, every fire station, they were the second responders. So we get to October 17th, 2017, I'll never forget. Home opening night, we play against the Phoenix Coyotes. <laughs> <laughs> we get there and they do this tribute to all the fallen victims. And my wife and I were there and we were standing, listening to these speeches and just the emotional, we were crying like babies. You know, just crying. And she looks at me, she goes, I finally understand why you wanted to do this. <laughs> and it was amazing. And so, you know, I have kind of been able to parlay that emotional moment into other teams, including the Sounders. But I will tell you, I, I invested in the Sounders because of that gentleman sitting over there, Adrian Hanauer. There was a team of local people that wanted to invest in the Sounders, and they came... A friend of a friend introduced me to the lead person, this guy named Terry Meyerson. And Terry had just wanted to talk to me about what it takes to buy. And, and the one piece of advice I gave him, which he did follow, which is you have to know the majority owner of the club before you invest. I've done it the other way around. It's never worked really well. It's like a good business. It's good people make average things great. It's bad people that make good things bad. That is a that is a idiom that will take you should just take forever. But good people can make good things great, or average things great, or even bad things good. Right? Bad people cannot do it. And this is why you see this disparity in the sports world, in particular. You know, there's so many sports owners that come out that were massively successful in business, and they just lose their minds. Like they do things that they would never do in their own businesses, right? Why don't you just stick with what you, you know, that plan that made you so successful in your business. Why are you not doing that in your sports? Because you know why? Everybody thinks they know how to run a sports team because <laughs> they did sports. It's just like everyone thinks they're a teacher because they know how they, they went to school. So, you know, anyway, I digress. But that's, that's the thing. The essence of sports is about the community. The fun of it is about the community. This is the privilege that we have of working 
on the World Cup because ultimately our mission, our goal is to leave the community better than how we found it. Take this opportunity to do that. Yep. Now there's more to that story, Peter, namely Bill Foley is a Seattle U alum. Is he? Yes, I did not know is. that. Yeah. He wow. Got his, he got his MBA here. Good for him. Yep. He's a smart guy. He's We're amazing. proud to have him as an alum. Yeah. You know the first thing he did when he hired people, one of the first things he did? Well, he hired a great president, a guy named Kerry Bobolts. And then Kerry and they decided that one of their first key hires should be a game presentation person. You know what they hired on game presentation? Typically in sports, you hire somebody that scripts a game. You guys probably don't know this, but like if you go to a Sounder game, literally every minute of that game is scripted, except for the outcome. Right? Well, what happens on the field is not scripted. But everything that you see, every advertisement that is flanked, it's down to the 32nd, right? Everything. What time music comes on? When, do the, when does the procession start? All this type of stuff. Vegas hired not a sports professional. They hired the director of the Cirque du Soleil. This is why when you go to Vegas, it is, I tell people, do not miss the pregame. You'll have missed almost the whole reason to be there. It's like, it's like this spectacle that happens to have a hockey game as the center point of the reason, right? You know, Adrian's part of the Kraken thing and Todd Lywicki is that, and I keep telling them, you guys gotta be more Vegas. And they're like, nah, this is Seattle. I'm like, the one thing I, I was like, you guys hired an organist. That's from the 80s and 70s when I was a kid growing up. You know, organists, like, we have a DJ. We have the, you know, the whole, we have a band. We have, you know, it's so crazy. Anyway, I guess they have a band here, too. I uh, want to follow up on a couple of things you said, but primarily that good people can make good things great. Yeah. Let me go on a tangent and I'll bring it back. Seattle is famous for our decision-making process. There's actually a Wikipedia page about it where even simple decisions can languish in a committee for years. I think Sound Transit is the most recent victim of that. Uh, they just, the headline for their last report was, just make a decision already. <laughs> but this effort has a pretty specific deadline. We have to be ready before the first game. And I also heard you say that you're kind of expanding this beyond Seattle and moving to other parts of the state as well to have fan fest areas and in other parts of the state. So maybe you're not plagued by this because you're not from Seattle originally, but how can you mitigate that? How can you bring all of the pieces together? It sounds like you have a pretty big scope of work in front of you. So how do you bring that all together and mitigate that decision-making process that we're so famous for? Hmm. I guess I do agonize, uh, so I sympathize with that. Being of Asian Japanese descent, you sort of don't want to be that person that sticks your neck out there. But, you know, I was raised by Japanese parents that left their country to be here. I'm first generation born. And so I, I feel like I have that as sort of a sympathy, but I don't have that as sort of like who I am. So, yeah, we tried to be consensus driven. And, you know, in my younger days, you know, in my 30s and my 40s, you know, I was at Goldman Sachs, which was not a place that you could have indecision. You had to decide, or you're, don't, you're just not, you don't survive. So I think, I feel like in my next, this current phase of life, which is sort of a community-focused life, I'm trying to be more sensitive to people. 
And that has led to actually some, what I would call managerial errors. Like you just give people too much rope. I should have made moves on some people that I would have done probably in two weeks that it took me two years to do. But you know, Seattle is a little bit like that. It is much more inclusive process. And if you're going to be inclusive, then you need to consider viewpoints all over. And that's what we kind of have to do. And because essentially, and we had this meeting today, and Lisa and I were talking about this for hours. And, you know, it's not our job to tell people how this will happen or what this will do. It's our job to synthesize and listen to what people want. We can't please all the people, and we're not going to. In fact, pretty much, we're going to be hated by, like, most people. But we're going to do the best we can to put on the best impact we can do. And we have said to people like the city, look, if you don't provide certain things, we're not doing them. They're just not going to happen. We do not have the bandwidth time or ability or energy to, to deal with this. And so if there's a lot of bureaucracy, a lot of red tape, we're just going to do something else. So if you want us to do this kind of project, you need to help us because we only have three years. It's not one of the, my biggest fears is the waterfront that we're putting a lot of effort and time into on for this fan festival. If it's not ready in 2025, I am going to have a heart attack. You know, I sat down with the mayor and I said, he goes, what are we worried about? I go, that fan festival, that waterfront park better be ready in 2025. He goes, ah, it'll be ready. I go, Mr. Mayor, all due respect, there's never been a project on the history of man that's ever been on time or under budget. This thing is already over budget and probably won't be on time. So I need to think about plan B. He goes, you need to think about plan B? The waterfront, I guess it's gonna be ready in 2025. I go, yeah, but what happens if it's not, right? This event is going to leave town. I need to have something ready before then, right? So I do have a plan B on where we're gonna hold this fan festival because it's prudent to do so, right? They don't like to hear it. But it also, what I noticed is that it helps them like, oh, you know, so the mayor's got all these people working on this thing, but yeah, you know, it, it is a risk. That's our job is to mitigate that risk and figure out what plan Bs are. That's a good, that's a good thing to do in life in general, though. You are speaking about the magnitude of this event and how many viewers every single World Cup game has. So do you think this event will be the event which will put soccer in terms of popularity in the U.S. to the level of basketball and perhaps American football? It's already there, relative to speaking. So what's interesting about the year 2022, the second highest watched sporting event in 2022 was the World Cup final. Second highest. What does that mean? That means it beat the NBA playoffs. It beat Matt March Madness. It beat everything else. MLB, World Series. The only thing it didn't beat was the Super Bowl. So from a FIFA perspective, the reason why they want to come here, and probably there's only two countries in the world that it wasn't the most watched sporting event. Probably, I'm guessing, because I don't have this as a fact, but I'll, I guess I can just say it, because who's going to check me? But I believe it was the United States with NFL football, the Super Bowl, and I believe probably in Canada that it didn't beat the NHL Stanley Cup Finals, probably. I, maybe, maybe in India, where they watch more cricket than they watch soccer. But what was amazing about that statistic to me is that it was played 
at 7 a.m. Sunday morning, our time. Remember that? This is non-prime time. This is not the time you choose to play your event if you want to maximize your audience. And the other thing, too, it's just simple math. This event will be the largest ever in the history. We have going from 32 teams to 48. We're going from 64 games to 104. The audience is guaranteed to be the biggest ever. I'm not even like a hype guy, and I'm hyping it big time because this is going to be a magnitude that you will have never seen in this country and will never see again in my lifetime. Maybe in your lifetimes, but not mine. And it's going to be amazing. And so it's the thought of like these 48 other teams. There's all these countries that didn't make it in Qatar. Italy didn't make it. Now they got a chance. <laughs> Thank you. Well, we're going to have to leave it there as the last question. So let's thank Peter Tomazawa for joining us tonight. You've been listening to The Leadership Playbook, the podcast edition of the Albers Executive Speaker Series at Seattle University. If you enjoyed what you heard today, consider telling a friend and give us a good rating on iTunes. You can subscribe to our show for free on your favorite podcast app or find us online at leadershipplaybook.org. Find out who our next guests are by following us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I'm Joe Phillips, the Dean of the Albers School of Business and Economics, Thanks for listening.